Welcome to Dismantling Injustice, the podcast of Envision Freedom Fund. I'm Julie Menti, Envision's Communications Manager, filling in as host for our Executive Director, Carl Hammond Lipscomb. This is our first episode of 2024, so I want to wish all of our listeners a happy new year. To get this new year started and orient ourselves in the current political moment, the Envision Freedom team wanted to invite you to look ahead at our goals and challenges for 2024. To help us do that, today I'll be joined by my amazing colleagues, Zoe Adele Perry and Rosa Santana. Stay tuned for our discussion about what we're up against this year, our priorities for 2024, and how you can stay informed and involved with our work to dismantle the inhumane criminal legal and immigration systems and build communities where everyone thrives in their freedom. There is, as always, so much urgency in this work, and we hope we can count on your support this year. We are incredibly grateful to everyone who supports Envision Freedom with their time, expertise, and financial contributions. There is so much we can do together to strengthen and inform our communities around what's necessary and what's possible. When we come back, I will be joined by Zoe and Rosa. Over the last eight years, Envision Freedom Fund has paid more than $14 million to free close to 6,000 individuals from pretrial jailing or immigration detention. Thank you to all of our donors who help us to pay the too high price for freedom. We know that paying bond will never be enough on its own to end the humanitarian crisis of incarceration and the surveillance of black, brown, and immigrant communities. That's why we also fight to dismantle the systems that harm our communities in the first place. If this sounds like the transformative change that you believe in, you can join us. Visit our website, envisionfreedom.org, or click the link right on our Spotify profile to donate to Envision Freedom Fund. Because freedom for all people will take all of us. Welcome back, listeners. I am now joined by two of my colleagues, Zoe Adele Perry, who's our Director of Criminal Legal Strategy, and Rosa Santana, who is our Director of Bond. Um, And I'm very excited to have you both here. Thank you for having us. You know, this is kind of one of my, my favorite parts of the podcast when we get to talk amongst ourselves and um, sort of give our listeners a, a taste of what some of our internal conversations are like. Um, I think giving people kind of a, a window into what we're thinking about, what we're talking about, what we're strategizing around um, is, is really important. Um, and, you know, we're not even two full months into 2024 and, you know, we're already seeing some pretty strong indications of how issues surrounding immigration and the criminal legal system are going to be at the forefront of a lot of political battles, election battles, legislative battles. Um, And so we just want to make sure that we give our listeners an overview of the landscape and the status quo and the conditions that we're, we're operating in. I'm wondering if if the two of you could sort of give us an an overview of the state of of what we're experiencing right now. Zoe, maybe if you want to start um, to talk a little bit about what's happening in in jails and and prisons at the moment. So right now, start with New York City. 
Um, there are on average about 6,200 people in jail. Um, this is back to where we were pre-pandemic and just for comparison's sake, um, in like the spring of 2020, that number was below 4,000. Um, so now we're back up above 6,000. Um, I think there's a commitment from the city to decarcerate and reduce that number in order to close Rikers. Um, there doesn't seem to be any um, indication from our elected officials, from DAs or judges, that there's any urgency to reduce the number of people in New York City jails. Since 2021, uh, at least 46 people died in city jails, and we're at two people who've died this year. Um, so with that, you know, increasing jail population, people are experiencing increased, you know, mental health issues as a result of incarceration in jail. Um, I think a lack of medical attention in jails. I think we all can agree that jails are not safe places for people. People shouldn't be there. Um, but I think right now what we're seeing in New York City jails especially um, is, yeah, just like a complete disregard for people's basic, basic well-being. And we've heard reports of there being roaches and like drain flies. It's extremely dirty. Um, they also, I think medical staff there um, aren't bringing people to their medical appointments. There have been reports of medical staff not giving people their medication. Um, and I think a lot of issues with the medical attention is what's caused deaths in certain situations, you know, in Rikers and in jails and in the city. I think one story that really stood out to me that happened recently was uh, Rikers staff. They opened a unit to move people who were um, accused of arson into a unit that didn't even have fire suppression. I mean, regardless of what they were accused of, moving anyone into a place that unsafe, that if there is a fire, there is no way of stopping it. There was another fire in which 20 people were injured in jails in April. So I think on all levels, the conditions in detention are awful, um, dangerous for people who are there, dirty. And I feel like it's awful to begin with, and it just seems to be getting worse. I think that there needs to be more urgency around not only improving conditions for people who are there, but like action needs to be taken to actually get people out of detention um, so that they're not there you know, in the first place. And then also, yeah, just having judges and DAs stop sending people there to begin with. Yeah. And we know that that's possible because only three or four years ago, as you said, you know, the the number of people being held at Rikers was below 4,000. So we know that where there's a will, it can be done. Yeah. And we're not talking about decades ago. You know, this was just a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so it's, definitely possible. Yeah. And and I also, I would encourage folks um, to go back to one of our, our previous episodes that we recorded with Freedom Agenda and 
Um, it was a really powerful episode. The mom of someone who is incarcerated at Rikers um, joined us and, you know, talked a lot about the experience and the impact her son's incarceration has had on him and on her and their whole family. So I would encourage folks to go back and, and listen to that episode. You know, Rosa, I think perhaps not surprisingly for us, um, a lot of similar issues um, when it comes to immigration detention, you know, just sort of as as the nature of incarceration, but also the fact that so many people in immigration detention across the country are actually held in county jails, not just federal detention. Um, so I think it's common sense that we're going to see a lot of crossover of issues. Um, but if you could talk a little bit more about what's happening in the New York area. Yes. Uh, like you said, very similar situations. Um, but I, I want to start by like just, you know, giving some like numbers of, uh, you know, folks who are currently being detained uh, nationwide by um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, so these numbers are uh, back from like January 28th, but, you know, it has been relatively um, stable since like the end of last year. So um, track reported about 38,498 uh, folks uh, detained all across the U.S. Uh, and about 67.5% of them do not have a past criminal conviction. So like, you know, like, um, the usually like this conversations like, oh, like everyone has a past criminal conviction, but, you know, it shows that most of folks don't have a past criminal conviction. And um, the numbers in our area, they have been stable since November, the same, the same as uh, the ones in, you know, across the U.S., but there were about 220 people detained at the, at the Elizabeth Detention Center in New Jersey. Uh, 510 in Batavia, and that's in, you know, upstate New York, and 62 at Orange County Jail. Something very surprising for me is, like, the amount of folks detained at Moshannon, Pennsylvania. That's about 1,200 people. And just, like, a reminder that most of the folks who are being detained here in Moshannon, Pennsylvania, are New Yorkers and New Jersey residents who have been detained in New York and New Jersey and been transported to that detention center there. And, you know, like the human violations that we keep on hearing, um, you know, at Orange County Jail, we, you know, something very similar to what also we was mentioning a lot of like medical neglect, you know, like calls of uh, sick calls being put in, not being called. There's a lot of like racist harassment from guards. The food, you know, the food very high in calories, but not like not every anything that's like nutritional. Uh, we had a, a call throughout hotline a couple of days ago from a detained community member at Orange County, and he was just like telling us of, of everything he's been going through. He's been detained there for 31 months, and he mentioned that. You know, there's a specific officer he has an issue with. Um, they have like what, what is called a utility room that has a sink. And that's where they uh, clean the mop to clean the cells. And, you know, just like they do everything like for cleaning there. And the officer uh, has been urinating in the sink. And, you know, every time the detainees tell the officer, he gets upset and he starts telling them, like, go back to your country. This is not my country. And things like that. They just like suffer um, on a daily basis. 
you know, is something similar that also a buffalo has been experiencing the same, you know, like excessive force uh, from uh, officers. Um, also, like if they go to medical, they only prescribe Tylenol, or like ibuprofen for everything, doesn't matter what level of pain. Um, but then on the other side, we have also been hearing from folks who, you know, if they have like any mental health, um, they go to the to see the uh, mental health um, person and they prescribe them like psychiatric medication, not explaining what it is, then they start having all the side effects and they don't really, you know, understand. Um, so it's like from one, you know, side to the other. It's just, um, but also at Buffalo, there's a lot of folks who have been uh, in detention for years. Um, this is something very common at Buffalo, like, you know, folks just fighting for uh, their deportation and it has taken them years and years. And a lot of this retaliation or, or things that are happening is usually more common on Black immigrants and Muslim immigrants. So yeah, overall, it's just like, you know, horrible conditions and horrible treatment. And, you know, and we see sort of how conditions of, of racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia homophobia all sort of compound the trauma and dehumanization of people who are incarcerated by the city, the state, and the federal government. You know, and I think I think it also bears sort of pointing out that while we as an organization are are able to free some people by paying their bond, I do want to remind folks that the vast majority of people who are in immigration detention do not have a bond set and um, they have no way to be released. Um, so that's, you know, just something that I, I want to remind people of and that, you know, the, the real solution to helping people is to advocate for everyone to be released into well-resourced communities that can support um, folks in, in the ways that they need with with housing and actual informed health care and mental health care. You know, I think those are sort of the the two biggest things in addition, of course, for folks to have access to, to legal services. If I could just add to yeah. just hearing, I mean, all the similarities from New York to Buffalo, I think across the country. I feel like this also just shows why we talk about how systemic these issues are. And it's not just, you know, oh, this person who like this employee or this corrections official or elected official, it's, it truly is just kind of, you know, a manifestation of the systems that we're trying to dismantle across the crim legal and immigration systems. We know how interconnected those are. Um, and that I feel like the the things that create these conditions in detention, um, you know, aren't just a matter of like one individual's policy. Um, but again, it's like indicative of like the broader systemic issues that we're talking about here. Yeah, um, I think that's really important, too. I mean, we talk all the time about how these the criminal legal system and the immigration system are, are interconnected. And I think that's been very clear in just this short amount of time, you know, the ways that they overlap, but also the ways that they feed into each other. Yeah, I think that's just, you know, we didn't we didn't invent this interconnection. It it exists. It's real. You know, there's a lot of a lot of truth and power in tackling these things 
together because they are connected and when one falls, so does the other. So one of the ways that we see these systems being controlled is obviously through money. And, you know, that's happening at um, town level, city level, level, state level, federal level in the past couple of months with, you know, we've seen the state of the city, the state of the state, where Governor Hochul and Mary Adams talked about their budget priorities for New York City and New York State. We've seen the federal budget in terms of, of immigration getting a big spotlight um, with the Senate proposal for security that was incredibly upsetting and dangerous uh, proposal that has thankfully failed. Um, but, you know, it's clear that that money controls a lot when it comes to these systems. Um, so, Zoe, maybe if you could go into a little bit more detail about what we're seeing here in New York when it comes to budget and how that's impacting the crim legal system. Sure. Um, so I think with the budget, as with, I think, just generally what's been talked about a lot um, by our politicians is safety. And I think as it should be, I think that's something that we can all agree everyone deserves is to feel and be safe in their community. Um, I think some of us have different ways of getting there. Um, some more effective than others. Um, but I do feel like that that topic is something that we've been hearing a lot. Um, and that kind of um, is kind of like the undercurrent through, I think, a lot of the conversations that we're hearing around, you know, budget, but then also like legislatively. Just to start with kind of what we're hearing from the public, because I mean, after all, I think our budget and our policies should reflect what the public wants. And a few months ago, we had an event called Envision Safety. We had it up in Harlem and we invited people from the community, people who are impacted by the criminal, legal and immigration systems to come and talk about what safety means to them, how we think um, we can achieve uh, greater safety for our communities. Um, and we did an activity um, kind of in the line of, of this budgeting question of we gave everyone who was there some fake dollar bills and asked them to allocate that across, um, I think it was 12 different buckets of how if they could design their perfect budget that would support public safety, like where would they put that money? Um, so the categories ranged from things like affordable housing to education. We also threw in some things, you know, like policing and um, incarceration. And across, you know, those different areas, when we were done tallying everything up, we found that 97% um, our collective money went to supportive investments. So things like affordable housing, education, youth development, employment opportunities, um, and, you know, not, not punishment, not policing. And, you know, that's not a coincidence. I think um, everyone very intentionally 
knows and deliberately put their dollars where they think, you know, would support public safety. And I feel like the research shows that if we invest in, you know, the things that actually address people's needs, that improves public safety. Um, And kind of even looking outside of our experiment that we did at that event, um, there was a national survey that was done um, that surveyed crime survivors that also showed that the vast majority of them prefer investments in things like drug treatment and mental health instead of jails and prisons. So again, it's not, it wasn't just our group in Harlem um, when we had this event, it's national um, that people agree that, you know, these investments are effective and will work and people prefer these over think where we've been seeing money being poured. And I feel like that brings me to what we've been hearing lately from um, our mayor and the governor of New York um, and their proposals and priorities for the year um, is that they are proposing cutting essential services and, you know, instead funding the carceral system and funding punishment, um, which again, we know does not work to keep us safe. Um, Mayor Adams wants to cut uh, $1.4 billion from essential services, which includes education, other social services like libraries. And, you know, instead of actually meeting people's needs, uh, Mayor Adams instead wants to cut the Department of Social Services budget by $8.4 million. So that's, you know, I think where we are right now. I think there's still a lot of time to influence what happens in the budget. There is still, you know, this the city budget we still have until the end of June. So I think there's like a lot of organizing around the city budget that's being done to try and get the mayor to to change this allocation of money because yeah, I think we we can't afford no pun intended to you know go another year where we're just increasing funding for like prosecutors and like creating new police units yeah that are, that are proven and then also just instinctually that people want you know we've talked about this before on this podcast you know sort of the the word abolition gets a bad rap as sort of an extreme position but people really embrace abolitionist values much more than they think they do um, just by, you know, sort of the simple fact that we we see firsthand how many people, you know, think that community investment and supportive services are really important for public safety. Um, And, you know, and that's the part of, of abolition that I think people don't talk about enough. Abolition isn't just about closing prisons and closing jails and ending punishment. It's about building the things that make it possible for us to use a new a new model. Um, but Rosa, if you could tell a little bit more about how budgeting is impacting what we're seeing for immigration. Yeah, it's definitely very challenging because cuts are not helpful. And, you know, the state, unfortunately, has not been very helpful. Um, And we keep on hearing about like the immigrant crisis in New York, but it's just like, reality is that 
there is a housing crisis in New York and has been, you know, for years. Uh, it's nothing new, but of course, you know, like um, shelters are not equipped to have uh, so many people. The conditions that they have been facing, uh, immigrants have been facing are, are horrible from like, you know, freezing colds to like water, you know, floods inside the the, the shelters. We have uh, been hearing also like uh, people have not been able to shower for days, uh, making long lines, right, uh, with the hope to get a bed. And this is just like getting worse and worse by the day. So, you know, if it's nothing new. I don't think it has has anything to do with like the immigrants coming. It's just that uh, New York is not giving uh, New Yorkers what they need, which is housing. And there's so many other challenges, which like, you know, lack of jobs, like uh, lack of opportunities, especially for asylum seekers or, you know, immigrants in New York. It's so hard to try to find a job. And like something that I want to make it clear is like when people immigrate and they come to this country is because they want to work, right? They want to thrive. They want to be able to support themselves and support their families back home. So it's not that they don't want to work. And this is like, you know, what the media is portraying, like, oh, people just want everything for free. No, that is not the case. They come here because they want the best. They want a best future for themselves and their families. And they want to work. And when we talk about immigrants, right, and we talk about like all the trauma they have um, endured and they have experienced from, you know, like the conditions at, at, you know, their countries to like the trauma of the journey. We know of like uh, community members who make the journey from Africa all the way to South America, Central America, to Mexico, passed through the Darien Gap, seen horrible, horrible things to the trauma of now getting into this country and getting into detention, immigration detention, then, okay, if you, they're able to get out of detention, now it's like being um, surveilled through this alternative to, to detention. Um, so is there like from trauma after trauma to trauma and they don't have those resources, they're unable to access them. They don't understand how the system works neither. So like, you know, it's very hard for them to be able to go to a mental health and talk about uh, what's happening. And we have heard from, you know, immigrants that have committed suicide in the shelters because of that, because all the pressure. There's, you know, limits to resiliency. You know, I think, you know, you're making an incredible point, Rosa, of, of how much, you know, people have endured um, and what their responsibilities are. Um, and instead of making things easier um, and understandable and logical. It's just one obstacle after the other. You know, it's like, yeah, here's a shelter, but we're going to evict you and not give you any support um, after that happens. Or you can wait in this line in 30 degree weather and maybe we'll get to you. You know, and and I think it it is really important as always to remember that, you know, when we're talking about budgets, we're, we're actually talking about people and people's lives. And, you know, the, the adage that budgets are, are moral documents, you know, if that's, if that's true, we're, we're in some trouble and we have a lot of work to do. You know, when we think about obstacles, you know, it's not just money, it's also legislation. It's also election and political fodder. And 
you know, again, it's very clear, public safety and immigration are hot button political issues. And, you know, they're often become central points in in campaigns and and certainly in election years. We're in for a a doozy of an election year. We're going to be hearing a lot about these issues. There's going to be a lot of misinformation about these issues. There's going to be a lot of scapegoating and fear-mongering and things that we've seen before. Ultimately, people impacted by, you know, the criminal legal and immigration systems are, are, are going to feel the brunt of, you know, of this political bargaining. What's on deck legislatively in New York, Zoe, when it comes to public safety related bills and proposals and policies? So I'll start with a win. I feel like it's been, <laughs> there's a lot more doom and gloom to come that we're going to be fighting back against. Um, but I do just want to start with, I think, a shout out to a lot of our partners who worked on the How Many Stops Act and another bill that bans solitary confinement in jails. The How Many Stops Act basically increases transparency around policing in New York City, um, which requires police to like document why they are stopping people. Um, Because I feel like even though the mayor and others may want us to believe that like stop and frisk is long gone, I think um, many people who experience it still know that that's not true. Um, And I feel like in the news, we definitely heard so many um, situations where police stopping people as like a pretext to then, you know, search them or charge them with something that they didn't necessarily initially reveal or stop them for in the first place. And then that escalates. So Shout out to, yeah, all of our partners who worked really hard on these issues. And after getting the city council to pass it, Mayor Adams did what Mayor Adams does best and, you know, aligned himself with the law enforcement and vetoed both of those bills to try and quash any uh, increased transparency or increased safety for people who are incarcerated. But thankfully, um, the city council passed it with a veto-proof majority. So they vetoed the mayor's veto and, you know, those bills became law. Um, And I think that also shows, is a good example of the power um, that the city council has to influence the mayor and override the mayor's priorities. So I'm hoping that we see them exercise more of that power with the budget again in the next uh, few months. I think looking ahead, there is also this focus this year on shoplifting. We've been hearing a lot of focus on hate crimes and on domestic violence. I feel like these are things that ideally no one has to experience, Um, but I think we also need to think critically and logically about if these things are happening, why they're happening, and what we can do to prevent these things from happening. You know, instead of for shoplifting, let's say, giving people resources to meet their needs so that they're they don't have to shoplift in order to get the things that they need. 
Instead, you know, we have our mayor and our governor wanting to increase punishment for people who are accused of shoplifting. There's been talk of wanting to create a new police task force specifically focused on shoplifting. Similarly, with hate crimes, there is legislation that the governor wants to propose that would expand the list of hate crimes. So basically right now, hate crime, hate crime is kind of like an add-on. So any charge can then be like bumped up to a hate crime. And they want to add a bunch more charges to that list, including graffiti. So that could result in graffiti becoming a felony. And, you know, all of like the prison time that could result in that. And I think there's a lot of fear of what this might do for like young people who are charged with these issues. And again, like expanding this list won't do anything to prevent violence. Evidence shows that increasing the severity of punishment doesn't deter people. So if that's their goal, it's not going to do that. And all it's going to do is lead people to face longer sentences and drive up our jail and prison population and subject people to, I think, all the conditions that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And I don't even have words. It just makes (laughs) no sense to continue to do what we've been doing when we know that it doesn't work. Like there's like actual data and statistics that prove that excessive punishment, punishment of any kind is not a deterrent. And, you know, to just be going harder to do that, just, it just, it boggles my mind, you know, basing things off of emotion and misinformation and and misdirection. And, you know, we've seen this at the federal level too, this bid to impeach Mayorkas as, you know, a way to sort of politically indict Biden's immigration process, presumably for political points. So, you know, there's just endless ways that um, legislatively and politically these issues are are being wielded. Rosa, can you can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what's what's legislatively on the plate for immigration in New York State um, and and in this area? Um, and, you know, any thoughts you have, too, about what we're going to be seeing sort of nationally um, when it comes to immigration in the coming year? Yeah, definitely. You know, everything's challenging. Uh, but last month, um, a New York uh, federal judge denied a motion that was filed um, by ICE to DHS to dismiss Ortiz versus Orange County, New York. Um, this was a federal lawsuit that was filed uh, last April of 2023 on behalf of immigrants detained on Orange County jail and um, because they were facing retaliation for organizing and for speaking out against um, the inhumane conditions that were subjected at Orange County. Um, there's also like dignity not detention Back in 2007, New York became a leader like for banning private prisons in the criminal legal system. But 
uh, unfortunately, New York is doing little to nothing for uh, to protect uh, New Yorkers, uh, especially immigrant New Yorkers. Um, so, you know, several counties, like, you know, we've been talking about Orange County Jail and also, like, you know, Batavia, they have ICE contracts to hold uh, people in immigration detention. So what the Dignity Land Detention Act is, is uh, trying to do is to get uh, eyes out of New York, um, getting eyes out of business, any business in New York, and create a welcoming state. Uh, the Dignity Not Detention Coalition has been working tirelessly, offering support uh, for folks inside detention, um, you know, just uh, supporting them with like commissary, um, you know, any community support, uh, pen pal, and just like resources that are very needed for folks inside detention. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, part of, of Dignity Not Detention, too, is, you know, not just closing detention centers in, in New York and ending contracts with ICE to detain people in, in county jails, but but also making sure that people are released and that they aren't transferred. Um, you know, you mentioned the facility in, in Pennsylvania, of, you know, that's mostly people who are connected to New York who are being detained there. Um, and there's, you know, the reason for sort of isolating people from their communities and their families it's, you know, it's being done on purpose. You know, it's really shameful. Um, and particularly, you know, when you think about the people of New Jersey spoke and voted to end incarceration of, of immigrants. Um, and, you know, it's the Biden administration that's trying to keep it open. So, you know, I think there's just you know, there's a lot to be learned from sort of this this ongoing fight. But again, you know, we said earlier, you know, just as we know, it's it's possible to decarcerate Rikers and protect people's personal and community safety. You know, it's possible to close these detention centers and release people in safe, humane ways. When we envision freedom, we're also being really practical about it. We certainly are idealistic and have ideals, but we also know that these are real things that can happen and have happened and should happen. So I think we've painted a quite a picture for people about uh, where we are, what we're up against, you know, what's what's on deck for us in terms of priorities. So I feel like it's the focus this year is kind of twofold. I think one, it's working on preventing a lot of the harmful things that we've mentioned. And one other um, priority that we're going to be ramping up this year is focusing a lot on prosecutor accountability. I feel like prosecutors are, I mean, have so much power in our criminal legal system and are largely the ones who are driving up the jail populations that we see. And they sit in a really interesting place too, where they are elected officials. Um, so we have some DA elections coming up in 2025 um, that we're gonna start preparing for. There is such little transparency around prosecutors' practices. So we're gonna be working on projects to try and do what we can to improve some transparency into like what prosecutors are doing in courts. And then we've also been seeing, and this is not new, but I think we've been seeing, especially from New York City DAs, 
that they're getting more and more involved in state policy. So while they're elected officials, they're not legislators. They're not part of the legislative branch. So they don't, you know, actually work with legislators to craft policy, but they do use their power to influence. Um, And we've been seeing that, especially from the Manhattan DA, Bragg. Like he's been the one really advocating for that expansion of the hate crimes list. We've seen them, you know, go up and meet with legislators to try and exert some of their power. So we want to do a lot of work this year, kind of ramping up our our prosecutor accountability work, just knowing, you know, how much power they do have over the outcomes that we see. And especially knowing that they're, you know, elected officials, I feel like we they should be, you know, more than anything listening to the people who put them in office and can just as easily take it away. And, you know, Rosa, when it comes to our our immigration work, um, you know, we we say always that that paying bond is is just the beginning. It's a very important beginning. And, you know, sort of our our ability to be in a position where we can bring somebody home to their to their family and their communities is, is something that we prioritize always. Um but what else are we prioritizing, you know, in addition to paying bond when we can? We are focusing a lot on mental health uh, for community members once they're released. Like, you know, we talked about all the trauma that they, they, they encounter from their journey to their release here. So we are focusing a lot on mental health. Uh, hopefully we'll start providing uh, group therapy for our community members um, and also uh, self-care. Because that's like, you know, and even just for like, not just for our community members, but also for our staff, because we know like, you know, like how difficult it is for us to be able to, you know, hear from directly from community members, everything that they, they you know, it's like secondary trauma that we, we face. Um, so we are focusing a lot on that, on mental health, self-care for community members. Uh, we are going to be hosting our second home and healing event in March. We're hoping to have more resources for community members, not just, you know, like healthcare, um, you know, like the traditional, but also like holistic approaches. So like herbal, um, a herbalist to come show how to take care of yourself, how to. So all of that is a priority for us because we know that we are uh, living very difficult times um, and we want to make sure that community members are um, taking care of their mental health and taking care of themselves. Yeah. I mean, I would say aside from people who need legal support for their case, I think, you know, mental health care is definitely up there on on the list of, of things that people say that they, they need um, and, and want support with. Yes, it's, it's so much that goes into that. It's like, you know, also family separation, like being, you know, in another country, like, a, like apart from your family, like, you know, uh, I know, like, you know, especially for the holidays are, are so hard for immigrants, like just being away from their families. So it, it's it's something that um, we know that is extremely important. And, and, you know, like our community members always like talk about it. And I will say like, you know, like sometimes in 
my my culture right like the latinx culture is sometimes like oh it's a taboo but we are seeing more people that want to be part of this and they are you know being very vocal and saying yeah i know that i'm i need support i know so yeah we're very excited about this and and just being able to provide this opportunity for community members yeah and you know in july we 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 launched our official membership program and we have 100 members so far, and that is growing all the time. And I think one of the things that's that's unique about our membership um, is that it's centered around people who have experienced detention or people who um, have been impacted by a, a loved one who has experienced detention. And I think that's it's such a, a unique subset of the immigration population who have really um, you know, specific needs and and also really specific motivation to be involved in the advocacy work to prevent other people from experiencing what they have experienced. We've we've painted a picture, um, as I said. You know, we're we're up against a lot. It's hard, and also as we said, a lot of it isn't new. But it is heightened, I think, by what's happening politically. And, you know, there's there's always been an, an urgency around this work because people's lives are at stake. But definitely through the work that we're doing um, in terms of, of advocacy and building power within the community, um, you know, ensuring people's freedom, those are all really important avenues that that we pursue as an organization and that um, people have been supporting for a long time. And I'd be remiss if I if I didn't underline the the ongoing urgency of needing to be able to do this work. And as with um, any organization that's doing this, it does require funding. Um, so I would like to encourage folks to Go to our website, envisionfreedom.org, and make a donation, join our mailing list, follow us on social media. We're on all of the social medias. Um, We're on TikTok, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Blue Sky, we're on Threads. So wherever you are on social media, so are we. So we invite folks to share our content um, and to invite other people into this work. Um, we've got a lot to do. Um, we know that there is the motivation to do it. We see it all the time. So please join us and thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining us. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund, an organization that works to transform the immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical needs of individuals impacted by these systems daily. To learn more about our work and donate, visit us at envisionfreedom.org. That's envisionfreedom.org. Our executive producer is Abigail Wolf and hosted by Carl Hammett Lipscomb. That's me. Special thanks to the team at Envision Freedom for being amazing. Until we're all free, Peace out.